So as we turn to Ezra 4, we're, we're working through Ezra and Nehemiah. The series is called Reform and Rebuild. Um, this is basically what's happening. Uh, if you had to summarize the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, those two words would be the, the words. Uh, they are both rebuilding in the sense of coming back to Jerusalem after a 70-year exile out of the land into Babylon. Uh, God brought them through that as a people. He allows them now through King Cyrus to come back and rebuild their lives. And so there's physical rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, in particular, rebuilding of the walls, rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding the altar, all the things to, to do. But there's a, there's a more important thing that's happening in this, in this book. It's not just about the physical building of the city. It's about reforming uh, their hearts and realigning their hearts back to uh, the God of the scriptures. And so we're seeing both of these things happening as they reorient their lives again to avoid another exile. They're going to reform, but they're also going to rebuild. And so that's what's happening in, as, a, as a broader theme for, uh, through Ezra and Nehemiah. Both of these stories tell the same story, uh, ultimately through, this, through different lenses and different perspectives. Um, so that's why we're taking them together. Historically, they were all, all kind of considered one book in the, in the time of the Hebrews and the Old Testament period. They just kind of put these together. And at some point, they got divided up into two. But they, that's okay. They're, they're functionally telling the same story, so we're taking them together. So uh, in, in the first three chapters, basically what we've seen so far is that the people get to return. The Israelites get to leave Babylon and come back to Israel Cyrus becomes the king uh, who oversees them. The Persians defeated the Babylonians. That whole thing happened. And so Cyrus, king of Persia, lets the Israelites, and really everybody, not just the Israelites, but this is a perspective from, from their angle, uh, go back to their homes and rebuild their lives. And so chapters one and two basically tell that story. Chapter three tells us how they start to reinstitute the worship of God properly. So that's kind of the Reformation side of this. Uh, and now chapter four, as we turn there, uh, we're going to see something that I think is going to be really helpful for us, um, particularly as Christians who live relatively comfortable lives. I'm not saying that we always are living comfortable lives. We certainly have personal struggles and difficulties. But largely in, in the U.S., we have a, a lot of freedoms and a lot of comfort in living out the Christian life. But the reality of the Bible and the reality of what we're going to see in chapter four is this, that God uses hard things to shape us and to sanctify us and to grow us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. There, there really isn't a, a picture of Christianity in the Bible of smooth sailing without any problems. It's just not there. It's the whole message of the whole Bible. You can uh, you can just give you, I'll give you a few examples. Job uh, suffered the loss of everything he had, but then he was restored in the end. Moses was driven into the wilderness for 40 years before being called to lead God's people out of slavery. The Israelites who were just led out of slavery were led into a 40-year uh, wandering period where they couldn't enter their promised land. But at the end of 40 years, they did. Jesus was crucified and then rose. And so this is the Christian message. Suffering ultimately leads to glory for the Christian, for those in Christ Jesus. Why in the world would we think it's different for us, right? 
That's just the reality that we suffer and then we're glorified. And, and in this uh, chapter, we're going to see opposition begin. Like up to this point, the first three chapters, it's pretty smooth, actually. They haven't had any real hardships, um, they, they, but now it's going to turn. It's going to change and it's going to become a difficult season for the people who are rebuilding their land. Um, so for context here, uh, th- this chapter is structured a little differently than we might expect from a historical book. It's, it's arranged uh, thematically, not chronologically. So it can get a little confusing, kind of like watching a movie with too many flashbacks and you're like, wait, what? What's happening here? Uh, that's sort of what's going on in chapter four. There's uh, kind of current times that it starts with and then it fast forwards like, a hundred years into the future, and then kind of jumps back to current time again. Um, and so what this is telling us is not that these are the events that happen chronologically, but that there's been a, a theme of about a hundred years or more, a little more than a hundred years of opposition that the Israelites faced as they went back to their homes to rebuild. So they were in exile for 70 years. Then they get to come home and now they're being opposed again for like a century. So isn't that fun, right? Um, but that's where, that's where this goes. And so we're going to look at it um, together and just kind of walk through the, the text itself and then kind of uh, talk as we go. If that's, uh, well, that's what we're going to do. I don't have to ask for permission on that. So here we go. If that's all right with you, but it doesn't matter. So um, verse, verse one and two. Um, well, let's just say the last verse of uh, Ezra 3 ends with a shout, a shout of joy as they restarted the, the worship of God around the altar. And that shout probably drew some attention to themselves. That turns out isn't really wanted attention. So that's where we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, and he's the guy who's heading up the rebuilding of the temple, and the heads of the father's houses, and he said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of, uh, Ir- I'm not even going to be able to say this, Irshadon, king of Assyria, I'm going to, sure, that's fine. He's dead. Doesn't matter how I pronounce his name. Um, who brought us here? Okay, so Irshadon or something like that. This king from Assyria apparently puts these Babylonians or these uh, these other Gentile people in the land while uh, the people of Israel are out in in Babylon. So the land doesn't just sit empty with no inhabitants. It just gets replaced by other inhabitants, which is typically what happens. Um, so we read about this actually in 2 Kings 17. You can read that story. Um, we're not going to have time to read it all. But basically what we learn there is that as the people are exiled out of Babylon, into Babylon, out of Israel, these people by this Assyrian king are placed in that, that same space. So what's happening in this story? Well, these, these people of the land, as they're referred to, uh, approach the, the Israelites, approach Zerubbabel, and they say, hey, we've heard you're trying to rebuild the temple. Can we help? We want to help. We worship the same God that you do. And now, this is obviously um, 
untrue. We know it's untrue because uh, verse 1 tells us that these are adversaries. So Ezra kind of gives away, he spoils the ending here, okay? So he just tells us right out of the gate that they're adversaries, they're enemies, um, but they're coming and they're approaching uh, Zerubbabel and his people and saying, hey, we want to build this temple with you. We want to help you. We worship the same God you do. And so why don't we just partner together? You need extra hands to help? Like this seems like a good, a good thing. Now, if we do read 2 Kings 17, we learn these people are not actually worshiping the God of the Bible uh, in purity. They are basically incorporating some aspects of the worship of this God, but mingling it with the worship of their other gods. That's what we call syncretism. So they're, they're making their faith mingled with other faith. And so they're not purely worshiping the Lord, but they're claiming to. And so what, what we're seeing here is this, that they're asking to help, but, but why? That's, that's an important question that we'll, we'll talk about in, in a bit. Um, so they, they say they want to help. They approach Zerubbabel. They claim to worship this God that they worship. What's their motive? Well, the motive, I think, is that they want to influence and import their false religion upon the people. This is the real fir- first real threat to the reformation, the reforming that is taking place in this return from exile. The, the people of Israel have a crossroads in front of them now. They have a choice to make. The choice is, do we stay pure to the God of the Bible as he's revealed himself to us through the scriptures, or do we compromise and let these other people have influence and say? It's a threat. But, but on one hand, I think we can understand the temptation here, right? Because Israel is a very, very small group of people relative to what they were before the Babylonian captivity. Very small number of people returned to the land. And so there's not a lot of help. And here's a whole group of people that are like, hey, we'll help you. This will be great. And, and so on one hand, you can see that they would be tempted for this to, 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 have, to receive their help, even if it means a little bit of compromise on the front end. And on the other side, these are the people who are living among them. They're their neighbors. Who wants to have neighbors uh, that don't like you, right? You want to kind of agree. You want to have a, a, a good relationship with the people who are living right by you. And so we're all told that we need to make friends and influence people. So this is what they should be doing. They don't need hostile neighbors. So you can see the temptation for this offer. But look at what their response is. It's in verse 3. It says, But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel, so all the kind of leaders of the tribes, they said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So they just reject the offer, flat out. They don't, they're not even polite about it. <laughs> they're just like, no, absolutely not. Um, they, they know, I think there's, that God is working in, in their hearts in this, that they know that if they compromise on this, they're going to inevitably compromise on everything else until they're ultimately back to where they started. Which, where did they start? What led to all of this problem in the first place? It was the rejection of God as his, their exclusive God. They mingled worship of God with all these other 
religious practices, the Baals and all these other false gods. That's why God drove them into exile to begin with. And so Zerubbabel and Jeshua and these other men who are leading these tribes are going, absolutely not. If we, if we do this, if we let these guys get involved in this work, we're going to go back to where we started. And so they just flatly lay, lay it out. No, you have nothing to do with us. We're not going to have, take your help. Just go away. We're just doing what we're called to do. King Cyrus told us we could do it. He's got the authority to, to do that. We're just doing this on our own. I think in some sense, we, we, we just as a little bit of application here on the front end, um, we all face choices like this. We, we have the choice. To, do we compromise our faith or do we offend people? That, that is a real choice. It's not always a mutually exclusive choice, but often it is. Do we stand for what we know to be right according to scripture? Now, there's a lot of offense, offending that we can do that we don't need to do, right? We don't need to just offend people for the sake of offending people. Um, but if there's something truly in scripture that should be our principle, our driving force, our, our, our guide, we don't compromise on that. We shouldn't compromise on that. But that's always the choice. Do we, do we do this or do we offend the people around us? And, and really what that boils down to is it boils down to pragmatism. Like, do we just do what we should, should we just do what works or should we do what's right? Those are the, two, those are the choices before us all the time. And, and unfortunately, pragmatism has taken a, a huge hold of, of the church in the West, at least. Um, pragmatists say we should just do it because it works. It, and so whatever we define as success or the goal, um, whether that's more people in, in the building or whether that's whatever, more money coming in to our ministries or whatever, we, we, we can take principled um, we can just kind of exclude principle and say, yeah, let's just do what works because that's what yields success in our minds. Um, pragmatism is a huge danger in the church. And I think uh, Paul describes pragmatism pretty clearly in 2 Timothy 3 and 4. He says that there is a time that is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, meaning they've got this, scratch, this itch that they want scratched, right? They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And so Paul, Paul predicted this would happen and he, it was happening, starting to happen in his own day. It's not a new problem, but there's a sense in which we just want what we want and so let's accumulate for ourselves somebody who's going to give us what we want, and that, that inevitably leads to compromise. So as the people of Israel uh, weigh this option, this option for help from these people of the land, they have to ask themselves the question, and it's the same question we have to ask ourselves, whose help is ultimately going to be more helpful? These people or God's? Because that's the choice. Do they want God's help? Or do they want the help from these people, which feels more practical and more tangible and they can see it, right? We can't always see the help from God in the moment. We can see it over the course of time for sure. But they have to step into faith here and believe that God actually has a better thing for them. Thankfully, that's what they do. They say no. They reject the offer. So what happens next? 
Do these people just walk away and go, okay, no problem. We thought we'd just offer to help. Well, no, of course not. They're going to just continue to be a, a bother now. So look at verse 4 and 5. It says, And the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in verse 6, and in the reign of Asherus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So what happens inevitably? What starts this whole process? They're told, no, we don't want your help. So do they just walk away and leave it alone? No. They actively discourage and frustrate and threaten the people. They're, they're making this difficult. They're like, okay, you don't want our help? Fine. We're just going to make your life miserable now. And that's what they do. They're, they're, th- this actually is what reveals the true purpose behind the offer to help. It wasn't a genuine offer out of the goodness of their hearts to just help, help these poor Israelites rebuild a, a temple. No, their, their actual agenda was to exercise power, influence, and control over these people, over the worship of God, ultimately. It didn't come from a good heart, and these people um, were ultimately wanting the temple to be about them and not about God. So we're, we're actually seeing the, this, uh, this reality of we, we want what we want, and if we don't get it, we're just gonna, we're gonna make it difficult for you. I think that we can see this a little bit in ourselves sometimes. And I think we just have to ask ourselves this question, like how do we respond when things don't go our way? What if the church isn't what we want it to be? What if a ministry that we love isn't what we want it to be? What if we don't get the opportunities that we think we deserve? Do we still try to support? Do we still try to help? Do we still try to just give of our hearts out of the goodness of our hearts flowing from the gospel? Do we actually want to help or do we withhold our support and frustrate the purposes of the ministry? That's what these people did. They were frustrating and threatening and discouraging. And I think we need to check our hearts too. Sometimes, like not, not saying everybody has this problem, but I think many times we, we will throw temper tantrums like we're two years old. Like we don't really grow out of that a whole lot. Um, hopefully we mature some, but, but it, there, we have to ask ourselves, are we mad because of something genuinely wrong or are we mad just because we're, we're not getting our way? And I think one of the ways we do that is we, to assess that is, are, are we genuinely happy that the work is being done even if we're not the ones doing it ourselves? Or are we frustrated because we're not the ones given the opportunity? Th- those kind of questions need to be asked of us. Okay, let's keep reading though. This got, the story continues here in verse six again. We, we see that in, now this is a fast forwarding. So like I said, we're kind of going uh, forward about a hundred years to, this, to the reign of uh, Ahasuerus in the beginning of his reign. And the people of the land wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bilshem and uh, Mithridath and Tabeel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. So again, here's another king who's kind of this, it's a little bit of a confusing chapter because of the timeline. 
Um, but it says they wrote a letter, and the letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rahum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of the associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Iraq, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Amalites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble O'Snapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river. So they get this letter written from all these people to sign it, right? We get this huge long list of people signing on to this letter. Verse 11 says, this is a copy of the letter that, the, that they sent. Here's the text of the letter. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up to you, uh, from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat the salt of the palace, and it's not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers, you will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to the kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. This is why the city is laid waste. We made known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will have then no possession in this province beyond the river. Okay, that, that was a long letter, but here's the letter. Here's essentially what they're saying. If Artaxerxes, if you let this thing get rebuilt, you're going to lose money. They're not going to pay you taxes. You're going to lose honor, and they're ultimately going to rise up against you and destroy you. Um, this is actually really brilliant as a strategy, but it's full of lies, right? The, the city of Jerusalem wasn't a seditious and wicked city. I mean, they had their moments, right? But they, they, the Isra- it's, it's laughable because the Israelites were a tiny nation. They had no chance of overthrowing anyone. The only way they beat the Egyptians was because God sent 10 plagues to just crush them for them, right? The, the Israelites went into the land, and yes, they, they did win, but it was only because God's presence was with them. But once they were settled and established, they didn't really have a whole lot of power militarily. And, and yet here's this letter written by these people of the land to, fr- again, frustrate the purposes of their b- rebuilding by sending Artaxerxes a letter saying, if you let this happen, you're going you're gonna to have less, impo- less power, less money, and if you want to get to the heart of a, a politician, you hit at those two things. You tell them, you're not going to have the power, and you're not going to have the money. And then suddenly they'll actually vote however you want if you can prove that to them, right? That's, that's politics. They're playing this, and they're doing it really well. And so the key takeaway from this section, I think, is this, that obedience to God is at times and, and will continue to be spun in a way that makes it sound wicked and rebellious, our obedience to God may not actually sound good to people in power. And the people who wrote this letter are incredible spin doctors. Like that's, 
you know, every politician hires a team of spinners who just talk to the press and spin things the way they want it to be. What, a, a good spin doctor has a grain of truth in it, but they can just make it much more nefarious than it really is. And so here, here's the reality. Like that, this happened. This is historical documentation. This happened. But the principle is, is that they, people are going to oppose what Jesus wants. And so in, in our response to this is not to fear the repercussions because anything that we do can be spun against us. They can spend anything against you to make you look like the enemy if that's their agenda. So here's what we should do. We're not going to win that war. What we can do instead is uh, live out our faith. Just keep doing what we're called to do. We're called to believe the Bible and act on principle and love Jesus and speak the truth in love. And in the end, truth will be vindicated. And so we just need to, we need to worry less about the press and more about the principles of our faith. But that's what's happening here. So they're, they're trying to stop the work and frustrate the work. All right, one more section here, to, and then we'll start to try to bring all this to a, to a conclusion. So the king, in verse 17, sent an answer to Raham, the commander in Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me, and I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made against it. Um, have made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that their city not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? That's the key, right? He doesn't want to be hurt in this, so he's going to damage them. Then, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rahum and Shimshai and the scribes and their associates, they went in uh, haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force made them, uh, and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which was a long time. All right, so, so here's the response from Artaxerxes. He just kind of, I don't think he really analyzed the information very well. He sort of just acts impulsively. He, he kind of gives lip service to, you know, looking things up. But if he had actually looked up the information, he would have seen that, no, Jerusalem's not a threat. There's really no risk here. But he, he takes the spin that he's been given and he just says, oh, I don't, well, I don't want to lose money. I don't want to lose power. I don't want to be hurt in this. So I'll just, for, you know, for the sake of my own kingdom, I'll make the work stop. And so he sends an order to make the people in Israel stop building. And so the people of the land take that letter and then by power and force make the people stop building. Um, but, but there's a glimmer of, of hope here, right? Because in the last verse, we're told that the work on the house of God stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. 
The work will begin again. But right now, for about a century, these people are under opposition. Here's the key principle, I think, in this section. It's that just because we're doing the right thing doesn't mean opposition will end overnight. But opposition will end. But it's going to end in God's time. Ultimately, it'll end when Christ returns or takes us home. We have to trudge through life in some ways through much opposition. But as we do, we know that God has our good in mind. So here's some key points as we apply this to our lives. I know it can be, you know, you can read these, these Old Testament stories and go, okay, well, that's, that's what happened, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. And, and the answer is, of course, it does. It has something to do with us. And I think the, the key principle here is this, that the church has enemies too. Those enemies, we're told, are not of flesh and blood, but are spiritual in nature. Ephesians chapter 6 says that we have powers and principalities that are against us. The devil hates the church, right? That's, that's the key. He hates the church, and he's going to do everything he can that includes to individual Christians that make up the church, he's going to oppose us as we live for Jesus. He just is. And so what we can do in response to that reality is we can learn the tactics that he uses so that we can counterattack and stand firm. And I think it's actually amazing that the tactics that these ancient people in Ezra used are virtually the same tactics that are used by Satan today. Nothing changes. He has one playbook. He, he, do, he doesn't change. Like thousands of years he's been trying to disrupt stuff and so far he's done a pretty miserable job of it because he only has one playbook. And here's what he does. He, we're, we're seeing it play out in this. Um, the first thing we see is that the, the spiritual enemies of the church will do all that they can to infiltrate the church. We see this in the beginning of this passage. We see the, the attempt to infiltrate the people of Israel by the people in the land who come to offer their help without really revealing their true motives, but their true motives was to dis, disrupt their work or to make them compromise their beliefs. And today we see this happening all the time in the form of false teachers coming into the church, saying things that are not true, leading people astray. Jesus warned of this. He said that many false Christs will come to deceive, if possible, even the elect of God, meaning the church. But one of the books of the New Testament that I think is really helpful in this and all, all the points that I'm going to bring up are, are, is 2 Corinthians. I'm going to take us to three different passages in 2 Corinthians. I think this this will help, right? Paul says it in, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians 13 through 15. He says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul's addressing the issue of false teachers, false apostles within the church. And 
the problem is, is that they are coming in and they're, they're sounding pretty good. Like they're not saying anything that's like out, so out there that everybody's going to go, well, that's wrong. They're, they're subtly leading people astray and they're infiltrating. They're coming in and like Paul literally says that that's, that's a tactic that Satan uses. He disguises himself as an angel of light. So of course the people who work for him are going to disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In other words, if Satan appeared to us physically as some sort of red creature with horns and a pitchfork, you'd be like, oh, I know this story. I don't, I don't want you to get out of here, right? But what he does is he subtly slips in and he sounds good and he makes it sound like he's on our side and he wants to be infiltrating the church. So it's been a tactic and we need to be mindful that that's a tactic so that we're on on our guard and going, is what the guy in front saying in the Bible? Is it in the Bible? And that's true for me. It's true for anybody you listen to. Is it in the Bible? Can you see what's, what's being said? And that's one of the reasons why we, we so seriously go through the Bible. I want you to have your Bible open as I'm reading it so that you can go, oh, that's actually there. He's not making it up. I'm, we're trying from our, a pure heart to, to just preach the word of God to you. And one way we can guard against my own stupid thoughts is by not letting me say too many of my stupid thoughts. So I have to anchor myself here. And of course, I'll still say stupid things, of course, right? But, but the idea here is that if we're in the Bible, if you're seeing what's coming out of it, you can discern it. So, but that's the first tactic, infiltration. Now, what happens if infiltrating the church doesn't work? Well, we see it in the story in Ezra. The next tactic is to discourage the people of Israel didn't let these people infiltrate their work. So what did they do? They frustrated and discouraged them. Uh, a, a commentator named uh, W. Brian Auker commented about this, and he said that discouragement is the primary weapon the enemy of our souls uses to this day. Many of us can remember some instance in which we worked with all our might only to see our efforts spoiled, destroyed, or otherwise thwarted by elements out of our control. In such moments, frustration piles up and we lose the courage to go on. Yet while human hands may weaken and fail, God's hand does not. The Lord hears our faltering cries. And that's helpful. And, and this again, we see in the scriptures, we see this as a tactic. See it in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, where Paul says that a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, he calls it to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So Paul has some sort of a, an opposition in his life. Maybe it's a physical problem. Maybe it's a, 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 a spiritual sin issue problem. Maybe it's a relational problem. But there's something in his life that is just there. It's pestering him. And he refers to it as a messenger of Satan. It was a discouragement in his life. And he goes on to say that he prayed three times that may be three times literally or maybe three times in a way of saying continually praying that God would take it away from him and God does not take it away from him but says my grace is sufficient for you so that my power is made perfect in your weakness. Discouragement is a reality but we need to recognize the grace of God even in the midst of our discouragements. The thorn for Paul was a messenger of Satan but God used it in his life to keep him from pride. And what the enemy does mean for evil, God always intends for good. 
We need to keep banking our lives on that. So we see the infiltration of the church. We see the discouragement of the church. One more. What happens if discouragement can't keep us down? We can move on to the third, which is intimidation. We see this in the people of the land. They write the letter. They get the approval of the king so that they can come back and force by true intimidation, by physical threats of violence, they can uh, get the work to stop. And they just keep upping it, you know, from, from infiltrating, which is pretty, you know, sinister, but it's, it's not real, like obvious, to now overt opposition and intimidation. We, we see this in 2 Corinthians as well in chapter 4, a little bit longer section, but um, it, it's, it's worth looking at. Verse 8 through 18, Paul writes, We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Look down at verse 16. Here's the key. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are seen, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul expresses in this passage the intimidation of the church. We're struck down. We're persecuted. We, we, are, we are being you know, crushed, but we're not ultimate, or not, we're not being crushed. I'm sorry, we're being uh, we're being afflicted, but not crushed. We're perplexed or we're confused, but we're not driven to despair. There's an attempt to, to crush us, and yet there's a response of Jesus is for us. We stay in it. Intimidation cannot actually harm us ultimately. The work in Ezra begins again, but this points us to a greater spiritual reality that the work of Christ will never be thwarted. So here's, here's how we should finish this up. We need to remember three things. Jesus told us we would have trouble in this world. We need to remember that. If we don't remember that, we're going to be swept, you know, swept away uh, every time trouble comes. No, we were promised to have hardship in life. The Christian life is more like a warship than it is a cruise liner. We got, we've got work to do here. We're at war in some sense not against the physical, but against the spiritual. We're not here to just lay back on the, on the deck and take in the, the sun. We've got work to do. Secondly, Paul tells us that, if, that we are always going to have opponents. We're always going to have opponents. So we might as well live our lives purely in the gospel. Not everyone is going to like us, and that's okay. We need to be okay with that. And in fact, Paul addresses that in Philippians where there are people preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry. And Paul says, well, 
Christ is being preached. So I guess it's a win-win. He doesn't freak out about that. And third, we are told that our enemies are not of flesh and blood. Our primary concern should not be the flesh and blood people around us, but, but the spiritual forces at work. Paul says in Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So what do we do? Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, we have enemies and they are real, but they're spiritual. We can't always see them, but God gives us all that we need to stand firm. He does that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have him. And that's why Paul can commend Timothy at the end of 2 Timothy. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, just keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. Things can be hard. Opposition comes. But Jesus is faithful and he is good and we need to bank our lives on him. Let me pray for us. Uh, God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you have, uh, through your son, Jesus, have conquered every enemy ultimately that we have, that we will one day see the fullness of that. And in the meantime, we're called, Lord, to just stand firm, stay faithful, but we cannot do it without you. We can't do it without your enabling power. We can't do it without your, your hand to lead us and guide us. We pray for that help today. We pray that you would give us the grace we need to keep enduring even in the midst of hardship. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.